0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John. John chapter 1. Wanting to expose us to the incarnation of Christ. The passage I've chosen for this Christmas season has been John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. This was a point when the word became flesh. A time when the God of heaven came down to be the God on earth and a moment in history when deity became humanity. And so this morning, I want to continue in that passage and bring to you a message that I have titled, The Sustaining Light, Living a Sustained Life in Christ. We began just a few weeks ago in verses 1 and 2, and what we noted there was introduction etiquette, a proper presentation of Christ. As John, the apostle, writes and introduces us to Christ, and then just last week we went from a proper presentation to Christ to seeing him as the sustaining light, and now I want to look at him as the sustaining light, so that we may understand what it means to live a sustained life in Christ, and so I ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I have said, 'He He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from this fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come before you looking into your word and ask, Lord, that you would do indeed impart understanding, that you would impart clarity, Help me to be clear in sharing your truth and help us be clear in understanding what you have for us this morning, Lord. May you impart your wisdom that we may not just have head knowledge, but that we may apply what we learn. And so, Father, we ask for your presence to be known at this time and in this text. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The most watched sporting event in the world concluded about an hour and a half ago. Four years ago, the last World Cup ended, and immediately following that, 200 nations submitted that they wanted to be part of the next one, that they wanted to be on that list of those who would compete for the next World Cup. Those soccer teams were then whittled down to 32 Thirty-two who four weeks ago descended on the nation of Qatar to vie for a position in the knockout round, and that was there where 16 of the best knocked each other out until finally there were two, but only one could hold the trophy. It is the most watched activity in the world, and some will do so in person. It was announced at this game this morning, there were 88,900 people in attendance in person inside the stadium. It doesn't include the parties around the world, that doesn't include those outside the stadium that was just in. But where there are groups of people, corruption thrives. The World Cup is an opportunity for people to engage in improper activities. When you have that many people together, it's easy to bring about illicit activities and use it as a means to promote those. Do you know that the Super Bowl every year causes the greatest increase of illicit activities in the world? At the end of the playoffs, when it is determined which two teams will compete for that championship, The host city, wherever it may be at the time, becomes the largest center for immoral and even illegal enterprises, bringing in billions of dollars. There's a long list of illicit activities that thrive in that time. I probably don't even need to name them because you're probably listing them out in your head already. One of the most lucrative is the production of counterfeit goods. There are all kinds of things, far worse than that, but this is one of the most profitable. Things like fake jerseys, unauthorized memorabilia, and even unofficial shirts and hats or whatever it may be. Once again, that alone brings in billions of dollars. One can buy whatever they want at a discounted price. The only thing is that none of them are real. They're copies. They're fakes. Today, in any major city... A person can find their choice of fake name-brand products, Gucci handbags, Ray-Ban sunglasses, even Rolex watches. But the thing about that watch is it's still just a copy. There are things about its construction, about its quality, that will reveal that it is nothing but an imitation. One could spend hundreds, maybe even a thousand dollars on a fake Rolex. That's still cheaper than the cost of the real thing. And at that price, it would probably be a very, very good copy. There would probably be a lot of quality in there, but it is still just that, a copy, a fake. Such a copy at that level may be good enough to fool those around you. And for a time, it may even satisfy the one who bought it. But here's the thing. They will only fool for a time. And it will only satisfy for a time. Eventually, the person will want the real thing. And that's how it is with Christ. There are many things in this world which may temporarily fulfill a desire or a need. But nobody will ever be truly satisfied until they are satisfied by Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is described as the light in our text from last week, and he is the only light. Anything else, any other light, derives its light from him. Or it is nothing but a copy. Our problem is that we risk confusing a partial light with the absolute light. We risk confusing the things that the Lord has given as a means to reflect his light with the light itself. Sometimes it's, it's leisure activities. We may find pleasure in them. They may even become a source of joy, but they themselves are not the light. Sometimes it's work. We may derive our self-worth from the work we do. But again, things like these are not the light. They are from the light. Like that fake Rolex, they may satisfy for a time. They may even sustain one's needs and certainly their wants for a moment, but eventually the newness will wear off and something else will be desired. The reality is that we're never sustained by Christ until we are satisfied by Christ. He is the light. And having seen in verses 4 and 5 that he is that source of the light, Jesus is also the sustainer of the light. He is also sustainer of life, because John equates both of them together. He is light and life, the verse says. And now we move to these next verses. And it is in these verses, beginning in verse 6, that we are introduced to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. But the Apostle John, the the author of the Gospel, John, is clear to distinguish that John the Baptist is not the Christ. He only announces the Christ. And so looking upon this section, these verses 6 through 13 this morning, I want us to take note of three different contrasts, three comparisons that John makes that speak to living a sustained life in Christ Christ. And so I want you to note first the contrast between the witness of the light and the source of the light. The contrast between the witness of the light and the source of the light. John introduces the two men who were sent by God. The first one has already come, but he's only a witness. He's witnessing the one who will be coming in verse nine. One is the source of the light. The other is the witness of the light. The one who is coming is the light, the one that John calls the word, just a few verses ago. We've already identified this word, this light, as the Lord Jesus Christ, two weeks ago. And then we are told the name of this witness in verse 6. It says he is called John. We know that he is not John, the author of this gospel, because that is the apostle John. And throughout the entire gospel, he refers to himself never by name, but only as the one whom Jesus loved. So the fact that he says John here tells us that this is a different John. This is the John that we know as the Baptist. The text before us describes both by making clear distinctions, though. It says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. By contrasting these two, Jesus and John, John and Jesus, we find ourselves with this opportunity to look upon their relationship. And what we see is a life well spent is a life spent for Christ. Notice how the disciple John is intentional in making a distinction between the two. He says that John came to bear witness about the light, but, and this is a major but, this conjunction that's meant to offer contrast, says they're related, but they're very different. So John is a witness for the light, but he is not the light. As humans infected by sin we have the tendency to confuse that which is partially good with that which is absolutely good. And so there's this disposition to take something that is meant to direct us towards that absolute goodness, which is Christ, and elevate it above that goodness. We elevate ideas and things. We elevate activities, and sometimes we even elevate people because of our propensity to do that, John writes very clearly here so that we don't confuse John the Baptist with Jesus the Messiah. Mark chapter 1, verse 5 says, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to John the Baptist and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. So we see that many people are coming to John, It becomes very easy to elevate the one at the forefront of any popular movement. And they could have done so here. In this way, there's a danger of confusing the one who is a witness for the light with the one who is the source of the light. In Acts chapter 19, and in the very beginning verses there, nearly 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the apostle Paul happens to be passing through Ephesus and he comes across approximately 12 men. And he asks who they are, and they say, we are disciples. But they're not disciples of Jesus. They're disciples of John. They call themselves such. They've not even heard of the coming of the Holy Spirit yet. And so they've elevated John. Even today, nearly 2,000 years later, there's a Mandian sect in, in Baghdad who traces their link all the way back to John. Interestingly enough, this modern group is actually hostile to Christianity. But once again, there's this danger of confusing the witness of the source. And what happens is that it leads away from the source of light and life. And that's what you see with that Mandean sect. They elevated one, and it led them away from the light. So John carefully writes He actually says in our verse here, the true light is coming. Only Christ is the true light. That only he is the real, the genuine light. Anything else is but a substitute. John is merely a witness for the light. He's testifying to its word and to its work and to its worth. We think of a breaking news story. And to give credibility to the reporting Eyewitnesses are often sought to give an account of the events as they were at that moment. By its legal definition, a witness can only testify to the truth. He or she cannot give testimony to something that is known to be false. This makes John the Baptist role crucial here. He's important because what he's doing is verifying the veracity or verifying the truthfulness of what the true light is. The witness of the light cannot be the source of the light. The witness only identifies the source. The reality is they are of two different essences. They have two different natures. Jesus Christ is God, while John is commissioned by God. John came into the world, but Jesus created the world. One is the eternal word. The other is born from the eternal word. Because they are different essences one being the eternal God and the other coming from the eternal God, they must have different roles. They function very differently. John testifies to the light while Jesus is the light. John is the proclaimer of faith while Jesus is the object of faith. And John declares the work of God while Jesus does the work of God. John is likened here to an Old Testament prophet His role is to announce prophecy, and Christ's role is to fulfill that prophecy. And John does exactly that by referring to Jesus as the light. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 8, verses 20 through chapter 9, verse 2. These verses that that read, To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to the the word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into into thick darkness. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, then says, But there will be no gloom for her her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness, in verse 2, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. As the light Jesus shines. In this case, we must remember that John is technically still in Old Testament times. We put it in our New Testament, but the cross has not happened yet. The resurrection has not happened. They're still under the law. God is still working with Israel. And what we see is that Jesus as the light is the fulfillment of Isaiah, overcoming the darkness of Israel's sin. J.C. Ryle reminds us that Christ is to the souls of men what the Son is to the world. Just as a world cannot function without the Son, humanity cannot function without God the Son. In fact, we could say John the Baptist, his role was to uneclipse the son, S-O-N, to draw attention to Christ so that the world would be exposed to his light. This is who John is as a witness, and that's what he is called in verse 7. It's the same word used to describe all those people who would go into the world and speak of the glories of Christ. Acts chapter 1-8, you will be my witnesses. It's a term applied to all believers. And so the relationship between John and Jesus becomes the precedent for our relationship with Jesus. And we begin to see three characteristics of John's witness for Christ. We see a condition and a conviction and a cost. John wasn't the light, but the proclaimer of light. He must be cautious to be Christ-exalting, not self-exalting. And so in this role He must be cautious to maintain a condition that is humble at heart. John evidences this humility with the words in John chapter 3. He, Christ, must increase, but I, John, must decrease. You and I are not the light. This church is not the light. Our ministries are not the light. They are merely vessels by which God reveals the light. Jesus alone is the light and life of men, it says. But notice also that from John's condition comes, from, comes a conviction. John was so convinced of the true life that he altered both his lifestyle and his actions. He does not conform to the world. Mark 1.6 describes John as one who was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locust and wild honey. He certainly doesn't look like many in our time, and he didn't behave behave like anybody in his time. This was a strange man, and his words are even stranger. Mark One Four says that he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. And then verses 7 and 8 of the same chapter, Mark chapter 1, says, and he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of those sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John looked different than the world. He behaved different than the world. And he even spoke different than the world. No doubt some mocked. Some maybe have even laughed. But so convicted by this truth that John lends no attention to that. He simply continues on with his commission. Like John, any follower of Christ is convinced that Jesus is a light and so must be separated from the world. That is, after all, what it means to be sanctified, to be holy. It's God setting us apart from the world. We will look different than the world. We will behave different than the world. And we will speak different than the world. Because we're speaking of the truth, which is light and life to men. Conviction leads to transformation. That commission, though, for John, at least, comes at a great cost. It cost him his head. That story comes in Matthew chapter 14, where Herod the Tetrarch agrees to the wishes of the daughter of Herodias to deliver the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so Herod, it says, sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And the girl brought it to her mother The Greek word for witness in in verse 7 where it says John is a witness is the word martis. It's the same word that we get our word martyr. It speaks of the cost of following Christ. In some cases it will cost one's life. John's relationship is an illustration of our relationship with our Lord. And what we learn is that the condition of our heart And the conviction of our mind determines the cost we are willing to pay with our life. We see from our text, if you went on to verse 13 and in verse 29 of John chapter 1, that John actually completed his mission. That indeed he was a forerunner and proclaimed the light. Jesus even praises John's work, calling him a burning and shining lamp. In John chapter 5. Living a sustained life means having a sustained witness for Christ. Living a sustained life means having a sustained witness for Christ. So, what we have before us is really a beautiful picture of this relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah. One is a source of the light, the other is a witness for the light. <coughs> and what we have presented is this dynamic relationship in which the witness is so convicted by this true light that his condition becomes one of such humility that he's content in his role as a witness it really is a it's a beautiful picture and then we arrive at some of the most heartbreaking words in scripture In what is completely opposite to John's relationship with Christ, we see the world's relationship with Christ. John describes it this way in verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. It gets worse. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. John goes from being over the world to being in the world. John, sorry, Jesus goes from being over the world to being in the world. How ironic is it that the created world did not recognize its creator? That reality causes Paul anguish in Romans chapter 9. But look at Luke 19. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 42. Because more than Paul's anguish, we get this picture of Jesus' agony over this. Luke chapter 19, verse 42. It says, Would you, would that you, this is Jesus speaking, This is Jesus speaking of Jerusalem and Israel. And what we see is Israel is, at this time at least, missed its opportunity for salvation because it did not know its own savior. This is Jesus' words over his own people. It's not me going out there and telling them who they are. This is their creator telling them who they are. It would seem that now would be the time to pay attention. But look at how it begins in, in verse 41. Jesus wept <coughs> over the city. Because it did not know him, Jesus wept. It exposes this contrast between the depravity of man and the glory of Christ. The depravity of man and the glory of Christ. That is our second contrast. Verse 10 says that he, Christ, made the world. His hands made everything that was made. Literally, each create, created thing should speak to his glory because it was made by him. In one sense, we're not surprised when the world rejects Christ. Christ. So we're not surprised to look at verse 10 and see that the world did not know him. But verse 11 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. It's not just the world. At this time, he said his own people, the chosen people of Israel who still did not know him. These are the people who by God's glory were led out of Egypt and who by God's glory took down the walls of Jericho and who by God's glory returned from exile. But now when that glory comes in the form of a human man to give them peace, they do not know him. This verse highlights the darkness of man, that desperate wickedness of people that blinds them from his glory. We talked about that last week. No wonder John had to go as a witness beforehand because they were so spiritually blind they needed somebody to point him out, to point out their Messiah. James Montgomery Boyce tells the story of a a king who has gone off to battle, and the king has left his kingdom in the hands of the servant, and he he rode away. He was gone for years, and and during the years, the kingdom became more and more corrupt under his servants. And so when he returned at last, the king discovered that those whom he had once commanded and, and stood over They'd really quite forgotten him. And wherever he went, he was unrecognized. This is what we see with Christ in the world. Through the prophet Isaiah, we, we read these words. I spread out my hands all the day to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. People who provoke me to my face continually sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks we have christ who is open to them and yet they are closed to christ the rejection by israel reaches its highest point in matthew chapter 12 when the pharisees attribute to christ the works of satan And at that point, we see this transition in Christ's ministry where he no longer focuses on Israel at that time and instead goes out towards the Gentiles and the whole world, which we knew was the plan all along. But even that whole world, verse 10 says, rejected him to the point that they actually placed him on the cross. The crucifixion of the light on the cross was the darkest moment in human history. If we dwell on that point alone, we risk becoming disillusioned and depressed. But praise God that the crucifixion did not extinguish the light. It's at this moment that the character of man should reveal the character of the Son of Man. We look from the depravity of man to the glory of Christ. When we see the horrendous nature of people, people who are no different than you and I, It causes us to appreciate the glorious nature of Christ all the more. It causes us to look at our Lord and cry out, my Lord, my Lord, I have not forsaken you, or I have forsaken you, but you have not forsaken me. And yet your grace is the most magnificent still. It's magnificent because we can't even forgive somebody for cutting us off in the street. And yet Christ has forgiven those who placed him on the cross. That's the awe of the cross. That's where we find so much wonder that we can't get our minds around. Because at the cross, God took man's depravity and turned it into Christ's glory. Our sin may have put him on the cross, but the resurrection and the ascension, through that he was glorified and highly exalted. That leaves us wondering then, looking at verses 9 and 10, or 10 and 11, how could they not know? How could the people be so spiritually blind? That's what happens when we confuse that which is partially good with that which is absolutely good. The Pharisees themselves are a great example of that. They're the reason we see that confusion, and we'll talk about that in a second. The world did not receive him because they confused partial light with absolute light. And look at the sun while driving down the road will blind us. And we could think that nothing can be as bright as that sun. But next to Christ, the brightness of that sun is still diminished. But that's how we often treat the gifts of the world given to us. We think there's nothing better than this. But when Christ is laid out next to that, we realize that Christ is greater. There are some who will say there's, there's nothing good that comes out of the world. We know that to be untrue because verse 9 says that the true light gives light to everyone. To some degree, everyone gets to experience the goodness of God. We call that common grace. As an example, we get to enjoy nature Some of us are calmed by a flowing river, awed by a setting sun, or refreshed by the mountain air. These things each are good because they were given by a good God. They are given to all to enjoy. They're not just for us believers, but everybody gets to experience them. But they're also meant to direct us to good. These things, at best, are only partially good. They're meant to direct us to the absolute good and the glory of Christ, because he is the creator of those things, again, as we've seen in our text. And when we begin to then confuse partial good with absolute good, we become spiritually blind. And what happens? In the case of the flowing river, the setting sun, the mountain air, we begin to worship the creation over the creator. What has happened is a confusion between the gift and the giver. This was the Pharisees' problem. They had confused the gift of the law with the giver of the law. The law, which was meant to direct people to Christ, that Christ would be glorified, became a means for the Pharisees to glorify themselves and for them to exercise their own power over the people. They didn't want a Messiah. They wanted to be a Messiah. And so they clung to that. And what happened? They became so entrenched in this good thing. It was a good thing, the law, but it was only partial light that it became a thing of sin for them. It became a source of pride for them and so entrenched in their sin and not wanting to give it up that they were blinded by the true light or to the true light. And it caused them to reject him. Friends, we live in the same world today. There is a constant confusion between the gift and the giver. We can look at the current debate about gender as an example, just to pull something that's that's relevant and way out there. We should realize that being made male and female was a gift from the Lord. It was part of God's perfect plan to glorify himself and give good to his people. But again, the people have confused the gift and the giver. And so now they worship that gift, the gender, rather than glorify the giver, the creator. If we're not careful that we can do that with everyday circumstances and everyday things, consider something less obvious and, and think about our relationship with medicine and doctors. They do good. I'm thankful for the doctors that I have. The right combination of doctor and treatment provides healing. It gives us a better quality of life. But if we're not cautious, we begin to heap more praise on the doctors and medicine than the God who equipped them. And what happens is that they become the greater authority over God. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, We are very ready to talk about our doctors and to praise the man who cured us when so many failed. We talk about some business, which is better than ours, or about films and plays and actors and actresses and a thousand and one other things. We are always glorifying people. The world is full of it. And the Christian is is meant to be praising and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. In the depravity of man, we will glorify the gift over the giver. So how could people be so spiritually blind? Because they have substituted their depravity for Christ's glory, is what it actually comes down to. But a life sustain, is sustained when the glory, Christ's glory overcomes man's depravity. Life is sustained when Christ's glory overcomes man's depravity. So, verses 10 and 11 may cause us to fall into deep depression over the wretchedness of humanity. But the next verses are instilled with hope. Verses 10 and 11 remind us of just how exposed to darkness the world is. It's troublesome to think that any person may be so established in the practice of sin that they become blinded to the light. But verses 12 and 13, they they offset that fear. And they come with a promise that John writes as he says, But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. From those words, I want you to note the final contrast. Between the rejection of God and the reception of God. We just saw the rejection of God. The creation did not know its creator. Exodus four twenty-two refers to Israel as the firstborn son of God, and yet they did not receive him, and so at least for a time Christ has transferred his attention to all others. This is a mystery spoken of at Colossians chapter four, verses three and four, that we just last spoke of three weeks ago in our study in Colossians. Those who have rejected God, whether Jew or Gentile, they're left to their own, it says in Romans chapter 1. And they're missing out on a sustained life in Christ because they're sustaining in their sin against Christ. But to those who believe, it says they have been given the right to become children of God. And look how that verse begins. This right is offered to all. This is contrary to the teachings of the era in which John writes. At that time, it was taught that salvation was only offered to particular groups. By the philosophers of the day, salvation was given only to the most intelligent, something that Paul himself finds himself confronting in the book of Acts. From the cults and the mystics of the day, salvation came through mystery and initiation which is what we found ourselves dealing with in Colossians. For the Gnostic, salvation was through knowledge, a problem faced by the the disciple John in his later years. As those who followed him claimed he was the one who possessed higher knowledge. For the Jews, salvation was only for those who had the right pedigree, the right heritage. But in words that cannot be misinterpreted, John writes here that it is available to all, but on one condition. It says they must receive him. They must receive Christ. And how do they receive him? By believing upon his name, it says. His name is divine. It's associated with the power of God. And, and now it has the power to save. This rite, it says, was not given to those who were born of blood. And admittedly, there's confusion over what blood means. Because actually in the Greek text, that word is plural. It says bloods. And so some think it may mean reference to the sacrifices of the day, and others think it may refer to circumcision. Whatever it may be, it doesn't matter. Because it's not any of those things that bring one into God's presence. It's not by blood. And then it says it's, it's not by the will of man. It's none of these. Paul writes in Galatians 3.26, through faith in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. And this comes by the will of God, our text says. Salvation does not come by man's works. It does not come by man's worth. It doesn't even come by man's will. Instead, we could say that salvation comes by Christ's work, Christ's word, and Christ's worth. They are given the right to become children of God. And those who are given the right to become children of God are given three things. First, they're given unlimited access to God's grace. His grace will always be sufficient to carry them through their greatest sufferings, their greatest sins, and their greatest satisfactions. Second, they are given an unrelenting pursuit of God's discipline. When necessary, the Lord will chase after those he loves in order to lovingly discipline them that they may have full experience of their relationship with him. And finally, they are given an unhindered approach to God through prayer. Ever present, he is always there to hear the cries of, of praise and the cries of pain. He hears our words of sadness and satisfaction. And this is what it means to live a sustained life. So we must say that a life sustained by Christ is sustained by Christ when we call upon the name of Christ. In 1866, Robert J. Thomas left China on a mission to bring the gospel to the people of Korea. Realizing that educated Koreans were able to read Chinese, because they were similar languages, he boarded an American ship with a bunch of Chinese Bibles that his organization had produced. As the American ship sailed and got closer, a a fight broke out between that American ship and the Korean Coast Guard. The ship was burned and all the passengers were killed, except for Thomas who managed to escape as the ship was sinking. He eventually staggered to shore with his arms filled with as many Bibles as he could save and rescue at that time. And so when the Korean soldiers found him staggering up on shore, he thrust the Bibles into their hands immediately, and then they clubbed him to death. That's how people reacted to Jesus coming into the world. Robert Thomas's death may seem senseless. Some soldiers, though, did indeed pick up those Bibles, and they began to read them later. And later, missionaries would tell you that though Thomas's efforts were light in the sense that he wasn't able to continue, they brought the light of Jesus, and that light began to shine as some did indeed start to become believers. Thomas's life was cut short, but through it we can see that a life sustained by Christ, because we find each of these principles that we've just talked about represented there. Life is sustained when the glory of Christ overcomes the depravity of man. Life is sustained by Christ when we call upon the name of Christ. And living a sustained life means having a sustained witness for Christ. Ultimately, our lives are sustained by Christ when we find our satisfaction in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed, we know that true satisfaction comes from the life and light that is in your son, Lord. Father, I pray that we look upon these words and we see your relationship here and we see these contrasts that you caused John to write in your inspired word, Lord. And Father, may that cause us to call upon the name of your son. And may he, may his glory overcome our depravity so that we may live a sustained witness for you, Lord. Father, in that way, cause us to live a sustained life. Let us see the connection between the life we live and who you are, Lord. And so, Father, we come before you with with hearts of humbleness and hearts of gratitude this morning, lifting you up in praise, praying that indeed you be glorified as you sustain our lives. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.